This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 22nd, 2013. I'm Linda Poon. And I'm Sarah Crespi. This week on the show, we have stories on replacing the Y chromosome with just two genes, the uncertain future of missile defense in the United States, and an extraordinary gamma ray burst. The previous record holder for gamma rays was about an hour and a half, so this is over 10 times longer than what we had ever seen before. Plus, a few stories from our online daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. How much of the Y chromosome is needed to fertilize an egg and produce offspring? With the latest assisted reproduction technologies, it turns out very little contribution is required. Monica Ward talks with Christy Hamilton about whittling the entire Y chromosome down to just two genes. The Y chromosome is considered a symbol of maleness. This chromosome is present only in males, and it encodes genes important for male reproduction. Various deletions of the Y chromosome can result in sperm defects and infertility. So what we have shown in our paper is that in a mouse, it is possible to obtain live offspring from males which have only two Y chromosome genes. Mm-hmm. And which two genes were these? The two genes that we found as the minimum Y chromosome complement, which was compatible with assisted reproduction, were SRY and EIF2STY. And what are the functions of these two genes? SRY is a testis determinant. It stands for the sex-determining region on the Y. This gene is active for a very brief period during fetal development, and its presence is necessary for turning on male differentiation pathway. So in other words, if we have SRY, we develop as males, and if we don't have it, we develop as females. Mm-hmm. The other gene, EIF2STY, which I will call EIF, is a spermatogonial proliferation factor. So spermatogonia are the most primitive germ cells in the testes. Some of them are called spermatogonial stem cells, and these cells are capable to initiate the process of spermatogenesis, which ultimately allows formation of sperm. What were your methods in figuring out that it was only these two genes that were needed if you had assisted reproduction? So my group specializes in assisted reproduction, and we were immediately very interested in checking whether these germ cells would be functional as gametes. 
So we bred males to obtain our mice with two eye genes, and we first looked at testis histology, which allowed us to have a glimpse at the cells within the testes under the microscope. We also released all the cells that were in the testes, and we searched for those that we thought could be suitable for injections. And then we injected them into the oocytes, and we waited to see if the fertilization was achieved and if the embryonic development was initiated. And then the produced embryos were surgically transferred into surrogate moms to see if we can obtain live offspring. And what did you find? When we looked under the microscope, we did not see any sperm. But we were very excited to see some cells which had the features of round spermatids. Round spermatids are the first haploid germ cells in the testes. These are the cells in which the DNA amount has halved already. So they carry half of the genome as expected of the gametes. These spermatids that we were seeing in the testes were very rare and they didn't look perfect, but they were there. So when you say they didn't quite look perfect, what do you mean by that? Well, these are normally a very nice round cells and they have very prominent features like the nuclei in the center, very smooth borders. So the ones that we were observing, not only there were very, very few of them, but sometimes they were a little bit larger, sometimes they were not as symmetrical as we would like to see them. Mm-hmm. But they had the other features which allowed us to conclude that these must be spermatids. So where did you follow up from there? We then went to another microscope, the one that allows us to look at the live cells. We released all the cells that were in the testes, and we started searching for spermatids in this live cell suspension. And we were able to find some, and those, Mm -hmm. we injected them, we got embryos, and then we transplanted those embryos. And what kind of injection did you use? What type of spermatid injection? This method is called round spermatid injection, and it's very similar to what is commonly used in the human ART clinics. In humans, what we use is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, and this technique, sperm is injected inside the oocyte. So because we didn't have any sperm, we took the precursor cells, these round spermatids, we injected them into the oocytes, and then we had to activate chemically the oocytes because spermatids contradictory to sperm are not able to do this. But other than that, the procedure is very similar to ICSI. So if two Y genes can replace the entire Y chromosome after spermatid injection, what does this imply about the rest of the Y chromosome? That means that other genes encoded on the Y are likely to play roles in the different aspects of male reproduction. One process that they are likely involved is spermiogenesis, and this is the process that takes our round spermatids through the transformation into becoming sperm, a motile cell with a wiggling tail and highly condensed DNA, perfectly adapted for the journey into the egg. Other Y chromosome genes can also play roles in how the sperm look, if they come in the right numbers, if they are sufficiently motile, and if they can function in normal fertilization, go through all the steps that involve binding to the egg, penetration through the egg, and so on. And so with these live offspring, how do we know that there is nothing wrong beyond the apparent physical in these mice? Well, this is a very important question and something that we and others really have to focus. The mice that we produced were healthy and they aged normally. Some of them we kept up to two years, which is a normal lifespan for mice. But of course, these are mice, so we could not ask them how often did they have migraine. <laughs> So to tell the truth, we don't know whether there was anything wrong with these mice that was not immediately transparent because we didn't test them in detail. And we used the method, this round spermatid injection, mm-hmm. 
which also works very well in mice, is still considered an experimental procedure in humans. So I think we have to continue working on the basic science, looking at the effects of this technique. And I can tell you that the, the research that was done so far has been encouraging. So going back to the live offspring, do we know what happens once they become adults and what their reproduction quality is like? Well, we obtained both male and female offspring. And the males were infertile, but it could not have been otherwise because they either had two X chromosomes, and this is a dosage which is not compatible with spermatogenesis and sperm development, or these males were lacking the EIF gene, which we know is needed to kickstart spermatogonia. Mm So we were not surprised. The females, however, did not have these problems related to their genetics, and they were fertile. They produced very many healthy pups, and we also checked if their sons were fertile, and they were. This study is done on mice, but do we know if it can be translated to male human infertility cases yet? What we have done in mice cannot be immediately translated to human male infertility cases. But having said so, I believe that our work may be important for future human male infertility management and when we considered what we learn in the more broad terms. The Y chromosome deletions are the most common genetic cause of male infertility, and the men with these deletions suffer from a variety of spermiogenic defects. Some of these men do not have any sperm in the ejaculates and in the testes, But like our mice with only two eye genes, they might have spermatids. And I hope that maybe our study will give hope that one day infertile men without any sperm may be able to father children. Well, Monica Ward, thanks for talking with me. Thank you very much. Monica Ward writes about replacing the Y chromosome with two genes in a science report this week. In the 1983 movie War Games, a young Matthew Broderick almost starts World War III by hacking into a powerful military computer designed to detect incoming missiles and respond automatically with attacks from U.S. silos. Besides igniting a whole new fear of cyber infiltration, the movie also reflects the real fear of many at the time of massive missile strikes between the U.S. and the USSR. In the same year, then-President Ronald Reagan announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, also known as the Star Wars program, a system intended to shield the U.S. from attacking missiles using ground and space-based technologies. Elliot Marshall checked in with the program's progress in missile interception 30 years after its start. Well, there are several reasons why this seemed like an important story right now. One is that this is the 30th anniversary year of the famous speech by Ronald Reagan, known as the Star Wars speech, when he proposed a national missile defense shield at that time, to protect us against a strategic missile strike from the Soviet Union. So it was timely. I like to see how things turn out after years. And the other reason is that this whole system that emerged from that initiative is facing a critical turning point this year. There is a proposal to expand it. And at the same time, a technical crisis has become evident in a series of test failures. So can you describe what a test of one of these interceptors is like? Well, these are very large rockets. They're 60 feet long, and they're, they're designed to get into space quickly and then release from the top a small attack vehicle called a kill vehicle. So the tests typically take place over the Pacific Ocean. A target missile is launched from the North Pacific around the Marshall Islands, heads northward, and then a interceptor, which is our sort of largest defensive missile, is launched in California, and they meet in space. The idea is that the kill vehicle will 
be released from the launcher, which has three stages. So it's released from the third stage of the launcher, travels in space at very high speed, and hits the attacking warhead at a closing speed, as they call it, which means their joint speed is over 10 kilometers a second. So it's a very small target. We have to hit at a very high speed. And what, what exactly are the interceptors designed to intercept? Initially, the concept was to be able to intercept long-range ballistic missiles from anywhere. But the program has been scaled back because of technical limitations. These days, it's described as a limited defense, and sometimes it's called a defense against rogue missile strikes. That is to say, countries that are sort of off on their own, it's considered to be good enough for that, but not for a true international war. Where many, many missiles are coming in from another... It's a limited capacity. One of the reasons is that it's so difficult to hit these targets that they assume at the moment that you need to fire four interceptors to have very good confidence of hitting one warhead. And we only have a total right now of 30 of these interceptors. So these missiles that we're trying to hit with the interceptors, are they nuclear? The ones we are really concerned about now are possible missile launches from North Korea and Iran. And Iran does not have a nuclear weapon, and it probably won't for some time. It hasn't even tested a long-range missile at this point, though it probably will pretty soon. Intelligence estimates say 2015. But we're talking right now about conventional weapons. But the system is designed to stop nuclear weapons. And how have they fared on the tests that you just described? Well, the tests have been uneven. On these large missiles, large interceptors called the ground base interceptors have been tested since 1999 in their prototypes, and, and they got more and more sophisticated. They had some successes early, but overall, since 1999, there have been 16 tests. Half of them have been failures. And the other part that's sort of alarming to some is that the failure rate has gone up recently. So that's 8 out of 16, 50% chance in testing. So what are some of the engineering challenges that seem to make this so hard to get right? The first one is just simply hitting that small target at very high speed. We've proved that it can be done if you have the target carefully scripted, basically. But there's another sort of underlying problem which a lot of physicists have brought up and examined, I guess, you know, for the past 10 years in publications and much longer than that in secret studies, this is the problem that someone who's launching a ballistic missile toward you can release a number of other objects with the warhead. And so the warhead would be surrounded by decoys or just debris, which can distract the kill vehicle or interceptor that's aimed at it. And we've chosen a strategy, which is to hit the warhead with a similar object. So it's called hit-to-kill mechanism. There's no explosive. So it has to be very accurate. It has to actually strike the target and knock it down. So what this means is if your interceptor sees five or six objects of the same size, it has to somehow determine which one is real, or you have to keep shooting. And that's where you get into expending you know, four or more interceptors. You don't have much time to do it. In particular, what we've learned recently from these tests is that the kill vehicle, which is sort of on its own for guidance in the last five minutes after it's left behind the launcher, relies on its own sensors And it's got to pick this one object out of a group and get it right. At this time, there's no way for it to get feedback or to give feedback about what it's seeing as it goes in toward the target, which has been identified as a big limitation because in your next shot, if you have to take one, you don't have any extra information from that first one. Why does this interaction have to take place in outer space? This intercept has to take place in space because we've concluded after several studies that it's not possible to hit the rocket in what's called the boost phase as it's taking off, which would be ideal. If you could hit it in the boost phase, the early stage, 
It's a much hotter target. It's burning fuel, and it hasn't released its warhead and decoys. So you get everything in one package. It would be great if you could do that, but a number of careful studies, including this recent one by the National Academies in 2012, concluded that it's just not practical. We can't get close enough to the launch with current technology. So the remaining option is to get them before they enter our atmosphere. It gives you the maximum amount of time. The problem that comes with that, though, is that all of the related decoys, debris, is traveling in space along with the warhead. And when you're in a near vacuum like that, even lightweight things will travel in the same area and look to radar. So there could be a warhead. So there are a couple of different options on the table for the future of this system, expanding the bases for launching them from the east coast of the U.S. or expanding the range of sensors accessible to the interceptors. Let's start with uh, expanding the base. How would that work, and where is the pressure to do that coming from? I think the interest in adding to the ground-based system comes from those who have always been supporters of the program and would like to see it expand and make it more reliable. There are a number of reasons why adding another base might allow you to get additional shots at the target. And technical analysis by the National Academy of Sciences panel concluded that with a number of technical fixes, including adding a new base, you'd have a much better chance of making the system work, which they concluded is not in very good shape right now. The U.S. Missile Defense Agency, which manages the program, said it does not need a new base. They have a lot of other things on their agenda right now. What about adding sensing systems? What kind of sensing systems might help get better accuracy? Well, everyone seems to think, I've spoken to, that using more sophisticated radars would help sort of discriminate targets as they're coming towards the United States. And if you were able to deploy them in a way that you could pick out perhaps sizes more carefully, you would improve your chances of hitting the target. So a number of different groups have called for adding what's called X-band radar, which is high-frequency radar in the 10 gigahertz range. That's just one idea. The Missile Defense Agency has said that they are looking into a new type of drone aircraft that would hover above the atmosphere, and they would add observational data, new optical sensors. But no one is certain that this, these sensors would be enough. So there, there are a lot of proposals. A lot of them are classified. But there are, another one is to add, this comes from the Academy of Sciences group, is to add sensors to the kill vehicle that would improve its own ability to discriminate targets and decoys in the last stage of the intercept and also would be able to report back information about what it's seeing as it goes in towards the target. So even if it missed, there would be a lot of useful information for the second attempt. One thing I wanted to ask about was the cost of these tests and of these interceptors. The exact cost varies from test to test, but I've been told that the Government Accountability Office Estimates they run around $240 million per test. The interceptor itself, the new ones, as we're buying, we're supposed to buy a bunch of new ones, are about $75 million per interceptor. So you can understand why people don't want to waste them. Right. So, well, what's next for this? Are we going to see more tests? The new director of the Missile Defense Agency has said yes, and he's said repeatedly that he wants to increase the pace of testing to at least one year, maybe two a year, some years. We've gone several years now without a test until last July, which was a failure. The first one, though, uh, won't be until next year in the sequence because the whole program is kind of on hold at the moment as they try to find out what went wrong in the last test in July. They haven't issued a report yet, but once they determine what happened, they will need to fix it. And once they fix it, they'll have to flight test that fix. 
So it's unknown when it'll pick up. But that is the critical moment. That test had better succeed. Elliot Marshall, thanks so much. Well, thank you. Elliot Marshall writes about the uncertain future of missile interception in this week's issue. Back in April, ground and space-based telescopes captured an extremely bright burst of light. GRB 130427, named after the date it was detected, broke records by being the brightest and longest-lasting gamma-ray burst ever detected, giving scientists a glimpse into the nature of these high-energy explosions. NASA's Sylvia Su sat down with me to talk about how observations from this event are challenging what scientists have previously thought about GRBs. The reason this burst is so exciting is because GRBs like 1304-27A are usually much farther away. But this one, just by chance, happened to be really close to us. And so it was a way to study something that's usually far away up close. And so we get a much better view of it. Okay, so can you just go into what gamma ray bursts are? Why do they happen? So there are two types of gamma ray bursts. There's short ones and long ones. And it all depends on whether the brightest part of the burst is less than or more than two seconds long. These definitions started from observations. You know, you would point your telescope somewhere, you you would have a telescope up in the sky, and you would see a bright flash of light, sort of like a supernova, but at different energies. So a supernova, right, emits light mostly in like the visible energy range, for instance, like you could see it with your naked eye. A gamma ray burst emits light at a much higher energy, so at gamma rays and, and at X-rays and things like that. So 1304-27A is a long gamma ray burst. And long gamma-ray bursts come from the deaths of very, very massive stars. So these are stars that start at about 40 or 50 times the mass of the sun, for instance. And so because they're so massive, they kind of run through their fuel really quickly. And then at the end of their lifetimes, in the dying process, the core of the star collapses into a black hole. Basically what happens is it can't hold itself up anymore. And so the middle of it collapses into a black hole. And then when the middle collapses into a black hole, a lot of the material sort of above that kind of falls in as well. And as the material falls in and it creates like a disk around the black hole and kind of feeds the black hole. And so the black hole gets energy and then it shoots out that energy in the form of beams. And at some point, if we're lucky and the beam is sort of pointing towards us, we see a gamma ray burst. So from my understanding, there are actually two phases of a gamma ray burst. There's the initial burst, and then there's this thing called the afterglow. Can you walk us through these two phases? Sure. So the initial burst, which we normally call the prompt emission, when you look at it, it looks like a bright flash of gamma rays. So it could be sort of like one pulse of gamma rays, or it could be like a lot of bright spikes coming at you at once. And... The prompt emission, we believe, is more closely related to the actual death of the star. So you get the black hole in the center, you get material coming into it, and then you get the jet that goes out. As the jet travels outward, it has a lot of particles, so charged particles like electrons and protons, positrons, and it has a lot of photons, so it has a lot of light inside of it. And there's also a lot of magnetic fields, we believe. And all these things sort of interact with each other. They kind of bump into each other. They're all traveling really fast. You know, they all have a a lot of energy. And so when they interact with each other, you end up releasing gamma rays. And these travel through space and reach us and we observe them. At some point later, the jet keeps traveling. So the jet emits the gamma rays and then it keeps traveling. And at some point, it hits the medium that was originally around the star. So the space between stars is not completely empty. It's full of gases and molecules and dust and magnetic fields. 
So at some point, this beam reaches that material that's between stars, so the interstellar medium, for instance. And these interactions cause more photons to be emitted. So more gamma rays, more you know, X-rays, visible light, radio waves, so across the entire electromagnetic spectrum. And as this jet keeps traveling forward and it starts to emit more photons, it loses energy. And as it's losing energy, then the afterglow emission starts to fade. And so that's what we see a fading afterglow. And all this happens within a couple seconds, too. Well, the uh, yeah, definitely the brightest part of the mission, the prompt emission, happens within a couple of seconds, like this one was within 10 seconds or so. But the afterglow can last for days, weeks, months. This one is still going, actually. Um, the afterglow of this GRB in X-rays, for instance, is still going six months later. So let's talk about the specs of this burst. How does it compare to other bursts that we've seen in the past? So this burst was within the closest 5% of GRBs. And again, that just means normally these things are far away and we can only sort of vaguely kind of see them. And then all of a sudden you have one that's close to us and you can really see the details of this burst and all the little bumps and wiggles you normally wouldn't see. And so because this was so close, we were able to observe it in gamma rays for almost 20 hours. And the previous record holder for gamma rays was about an hour and a half. So this is over 10 times longer than what we had ever seen before. So is it fair to say that this is the brightest, longest, and one of the closest observed? It's tricky because in high energy gamma rays, definitely. But there are definitely other bursts that are closer, although most are not this spectacularly bright. Mm -hmm. Most that are close are really weak, and then sometimes ones that are farther away happen to release more energy. So this burst was definitely one of the brightest bursts. It falls into that group of very energetic bursts. All right. So is this just a statistical outlier, or does it kind of challenge what we think we've known about gamma ray bursts? Both yes and no. It's not quite a statistical outlier just because it looks like a regular burst that we'd see farther away just happens to be brought up close to us. But it does challenge what we have previously thought about GRBs. So previously we had this model called the synchrotron model. And basically synchrotron emission happens when you have really fast-moving charged particles, like electrons moving close to the speed of light, and then they interact with magnetic fields. And these magnetic fields accelerate the electrons. And then when the electrons then decelerate, they release gamma rays, so high-energy photons. So this model still holds because it still explains 90% of the emission. But because this burst was so close, we also observed some very, very high-energy photons that we didn't expect to see. So what happens is these electrons are accelerated, and then they lose energy and they emit photons. So if you set these two sort of equal, if you sort of balance this equation of things being accelerated and gaining energy, and then these same things losing energy, Mm -hmm. you can calculate the maximum possible energy you would get in the uh, emitted photon. And when we did that for this burst, we found that this maximum energy didn't explain some of the highest energy photons that we saw. So, for instance, we saw a 95 giga electron volt gamma ray. And this was over three times greater than the previous record that we ever observed. And so that was kind of amazing. Does that mean we need to tweak the model to encompass this more extreme gamma ray burst? Well, so there are different things we could do. For instance, the synchrotron model still explains the vast majority of the emission. It still explains why we see most of these gamma rays. There just happen to be a handful of really high energy ones that the synchrotron model has difficulty with. Mm -hmm. And so it could be that most of the gamma rays come from synchrotron emission and there's just an extra type of emission that's going on at the same time on top of that. It could also be that maybe we need to think slightly more fundamentally. Maybe these electrons are being excited or being accelerated much more quickly than we had previously thought. And so if you're giving them more energy than we thought 
you were giving them, then maybe they can then emit higher energy photons. And then another possibility would be to look at something new altogether. But it's sort of like, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mm-hmm. mean, if synchrotron emission is working well for most of this burst, maybe we just have to, like you say, maybe we just have to tweak it a little bit or sort of fill in the gaps or add in other things. All right, so this is one of four papers that we're publishing in Science. How do these papers fit together? The four papers are from four different observatories. So our telescope, our observatory, is a gamma-ray telescope. And then you have an optical telescope. So optical being, for instance, things you could theoretically see with your own eye. And then an X-ray telescope. And then another telescope that's sort of sub-gamma-ray, between gamma-ray and X-rays. So these four papers all sort of give you a different view of the gamma ray burst at different energies. So it's like if you heard a piece of orchestral music, but you were only able to hear high-pitched notes, you might only hear the flutes and the piccolos, for instance, and the violins, maybe. And then your friends can only hear the low-pitched notes. So your friend would hear you know, the cellos, the basses, and the tubas. But if you sort of pull your knowledge, then you get a much better idea of what the song actually sounds like. And that's sort of what we're doing here with this group of papers. All right. Well, Sylvia Sue, thank you so much. Thanks. Sylvia Sue and colleagues report observations from the record-breaking GRB 130427 and four Science Express papers this week. You can read them at www.scienceexpress.org. This Week in Science. On the site this week, you can read a research article on evidence for high-energy extraterrestrial neutrinos, an article on the effect dramatic conformational change in the chromosomes may have on epigenetic information, and in a news focus story, the important disconnect between studies conducted in animals and humans. You can check out all these stories and more at www.sciencemag.org. Finally today, David Grimm, editor for our daily news site, Science Now, is here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Christy Hamilton. First up, we have a story on lice. Lice have been pestering the scalps of children and beleaguered parents for years, but the real head-scratcher for scientists is whether late-hatching lice can actually thwart traditional treatment options. So how do lice latch on to people's heads? Well, they actually don't stick to our skin, at least not directly. They deposit their nits, which are their eggs, at the base of our hair shafts. It's long been thought, well, it's actually been a little unclear on how long it takes these eggs to hatch. In fact, a lot of the research that was done on lice was done in the 1920s and 1930s. So it's almost a century old. And a lot of this research involved actually rearing lice inside of boxes that were strapped to a person's arm or ankle. So it seems like kind of unpleasant research. But the upshot of that research was that scientists thought that it, you know, maybe took about a week, maybe a little bit longer for these eggs to hatch. But this new study suggests that it could take even longer, maybe up to two weeks. So why are researchers revisiting this topic? Well, the problem is that a lot of the current treatments for lice only work for about seven days. So if you've got eggs that are hatching up to two weeks after they are laid, then a lot of these topical treatments that are around now may not be doing a good job and you may be getting lice appearing after you think you've sort of cleared your head of the problem. 
So assuming that the researchers didn't use a box latched to someone's arm, so how did they go about testing this? Well, what they did is they analyzed about 20 previous studies that investigated killing lice through a variety of means, like lotions. And what they found when they put all these data together was that, you know, again, the, the eggs were really taking a lot longer to hatch than was previously thought. Also, the person's scalp temperature actually seemed to play a big role. The warmer the scalp, the faster the lice developed. And also, lice were more fond of the thick hair at the nape of the neck than on the thinner hair on the top and the front of the scalp. So what does this mean then for beleaguered parents and their (laughs) itchy-headed kids? Well, what it means is it actually may sort of be overtaken by some new treatments for lice. Some of the new treatments on the market are actually oral insecticides, which are very effective at killing lice and eggs right away. And they don't have these lag times where the eggs can stick around for a while. So it may be the case that even though we know a lot more about how lice infest us, the new medications may take care of them anyway. Next up, we have a story on mummifying meat. According to archaeologists, pharaohs relished their beef ribs too, so much so that the meat was mummified to enjoy in the afterlife. And now those ribs are providing food for thought on ancient preservation methods. So first of all, where did they find all this meat? (laughs) Well, they're finding it in the tombs of pharaohs. So, for example, in King Tutankhamun's tomb, there were 48 wooden cases of butchered cuts of beef and poultry. And these so-called meat mummies have also been found in other tombs. There's some samples of them at Egypt's Cairo Museum and the British Museum in London. Some of them are calves that have been prepared as food and placed in tombs that are about 3,000 years old. One of them is a goat leg that was mummified around 1290 BCE. And still others are mummies of beef ribs. It's making me hungry just sort of talking about it. (laughs) So archaeologists have found mummified meat before. What's so special about these beef ribs? Well, what's special about the new study is that the researchers feel like they have a better idea of how this food was mummified. A lot of these pharaohs were buried with grain, which can last a long time, but you can imagine just burying meat by itself, it's going to go bad really quickly. And the point with all of this mummification was to have it available for the pharaohs well into the afterlife. So they had to find a way of preserving this meat. And the scientists in this new study wanted to figure out what they were doing. And what they found was that there was a variety of different methods used. So for example, with a goat leg, it seemed like there was some animal fat that was smeared over the bandages around the goat leg. Maybe that was used to help sort of mummify it. With the beef ribs, it looks like the ancient Egyptians used a resin from a plant belonging to the genus pistachia. And this was a very expensive compound. It was imported from the Mediterranean, and it was often used by the elite members of society as incense, varnish, and food flavoring. But it was also apparently a very effective mummifier, and it seems to have been in use fairly early on, as early as 3,500 years ago. Hmm. So does this change our perception of preservation methods? Or Well, it does a bit, because, because this is considered sort of an advanced way to mummify. Researchers didn't think that this pistachia was used until about 600 years later than they're finding it on these beef ribs, which suggests that the ancient Egyptians may have had more advanced mummifying practices earlier than thought. Very cool. Finally today, we have a story on synesthesia. People who see colors when hearing musical notes 
or perceive numbers as inherently colored, have synesthesia, a neurologic condition where the senses get tangled up. Synesthesia only affects a small fraction of the population, but it turns out that among people with autism, that percentage may be a lot higher. So why does someone have synesthesia? Well, it's a little unclear, but scientists believe it's caused by an overabundance of connections between neurons, and somehow this overabundance causes the senses to sort of get mixed up in the brain. And what's curious about that is that a similar defect has been proposed as a cause of autism, that this overabundance of connections, and where a lot of synesthetes actually find the experience interesting. You know, they see a you know what most of us would see as a black. Letter A, and the synesthetes are seeing it as a red A, or they hear a musical instrument playing, and all of a sudden they see a rainbow of colors. A lot of them actually don't mind that, but for the autistics that experience this hypersensitivity and this mixing of senses, it actually seems to be debilitating. It can cause them to become more withdrawn or to try to soothe themselves with repetitive motions like rocking, which is common among people with autism. But it's this similarity between what might be causing autism and synesthesia that led scientists in this new study to see if there really was a connection between the two disorders. And people with autism are notoriously hard to study. So, how did these researchers go about that? Well, the re- researchers sent a bunch of online questionnaires to people with synesthesia, people with autism, and, and people that didn't have either disorder. And what they were trying to figure out is a lot of people with autism have trouble interacting with people face to face, but they have an easier time interacting with a questionnaire, which is why the researchers chose this method. And what they found was that people with autism were almost three times as likely to have some type of synesthesia. Than people without autism. So, how could this information help people with autism? Well, one idea is that when researchers are looking for genes that underlie synesthesia, they may also be looking for genes that underlie autism. Perhaps there's some overlap there that will lead to more clues to the origin of both conditions. Another thing might be finding a new way to soothe autistics if they really are hypersensitive to a lot of the sensory stimuli that the rest of us deal with. Maybe there's a way to figure out a way to put them in a more calming environment, an environment that has less sensory overload, and that could be one potential treatment for the condition. Hmm. So what else is on the site, Dave? Well, Christy, for Science Now, we've got a story about why female sparrows are more faithful to their mates at high altitudes. Also a story about researchers excavating dinosaur fossils by using 3D printing. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about, speaking of dinosaurs, why a $5 million dinosaur fossil, this is a fossil of two dinosaurs intertwined, failed to sell at auction. Also a story about whether do-it-yourself biology is safe. And finally, for Science Live, our weekly chat on the hottest topics in science, this week's Science Live is about splitting water to store energy. And then we'll be taking a break for Thanksgiving. But after that, we'll be returning on December 5th for a chat that I'll actually be moderating on personhood for non-human animals. Does it make sense to grant legal rights to animals that aren't human? So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site, Science Now. I'm Christy Hamilton. You can check out the latest news, our upcoming live chats, and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes the November 22, 2013 edition of the Science Podcast. 
If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. And I'm Linda Poon. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.